Hi, everybody. Welcome to your baby's brilliant brain. I'm Dr. Christine Anderson, and with me is Dr. Toxelruck. And we're so glad you joined us here today for a special episode where we have a specialist in pediatric neurology, Dr. Laura Hansen. We're going to meet her in a second. She is a fellow chiropractor of mine who also went through the pediatrics program and who also followed a path in neurology. So she is someone near and dear to my heart, and I'm so glad she could be here with us today because she is busy, busy, busy. She, I think she might even be busier than I am, which is to say very busy. So Dr. Toxel is going to introduce her, but I, we just want to say hi, Dr. Laura. Hi, everybody. How you doing? <laughs> pretty well, pretty well. So looking at this bio, Dr. Laura Hansen, DC. MS, DICCP, BCA, CAS, MDT. Holy moly, that is a lot of credentials. <laughs> My kids say I'm the alphabet soup. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and importantly, you're a board certified chiropractic, pediatric diplomate, master's of science, board certified in neurofeedback, and a certified autism specialist and a neurodevelopmental therapist. So you held faculty positions at both Palmer College and Life University, those are both chiropractic colleges, from 2003 until 2012. You're recognized domestically and internationally, which is amazing. Congratulations through your personal teachings to healthcare professionals, teachers, and parents on the progression of pediatric development. So you've been in practice since 1996 in the area of pediatric development and brain-based patient management. So you're a world expert in teaching and caring for children with developmental delay. And your goal is to educate communities on the effects of stress on the developing brain in the ability to conceive a baby, meltdowns in parenting, big one, and chronic ill health, something that is so prevalent in today's society and not being addressed holistically enough, honestly. So... Your main thing, though, is you recognize that in order to change the chronic patterns of dis-ease, very big distinction there, altered development and stress that affects a person's thought and drive, we must change how the brain perceives its environment. Dr. Hansen, you are committed to bringing a message of hope and resolution through the transformation of your mind. Yes. Wow. Yes. <laughs> Uh, is that all? Yeah. Are we done? <laughs> it's like a novel. It's like just a that, Just that little nugget. Yeah. No kidding. You know, I, um, I'm always interested in learning how chiropractors find their way to chiropractic. And then for you also, how you found your way into the specialty of neurology. So can, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, I was actually headed towards being an attorney. And I think that's because my mom told me all the time growing up, you're going to be a lawyer, you're going to be a lawyer. So I just kind of naturally thought, I'm going to be a lawyer. And then, of course, I have to go a little bit more. I started to want to focus on becoming a Supreme Court justice. I literally could visualize myself in some really great suit with high heels, a red Porsche, driving up to the courthouse. I mean, I literally saw myself doing this. And so um, while my husband, now ex-husband, uh, was going to chiropractic school, I was the main breadwinner. And so in order to keep me going and in my direction, I became a paralegal. And so I actually got to work in law firms and I, I tried, I tried like three different ones. And I was just so disturbed with the environment of our legal system. And then I made my last move and I really didn't appreciate how this single mother was being handled over a very small stipend she would receive in a car accident. And there was, a, there was a very serious emotional issue going on for her and her daughters. And it was absolutely necessary for her to move. And unfortunately, the attorney was just milking the money. And I can remember, I had only been there a few weeks. And I, after I heard 
her story and saw what was going on, I literally walked in there and said, um, I'm giving my resignation. I'm going to report you to the board or to the bar if you don't give this woman her money. And I left the legal field. And so my uh, husband at the time was getting ready to graduate from Life University. So I just went over there to see if I could get a job. And they put me in student affairs and just being in the environment and listening to everybody. I was like, huh, I wonder if I could do this. And I didn't have the prerequisites, though, to go to chiropractic school. I didn't have physics one or two. I, did, I had chemistry one, not chemistry two. I did not have organic one and two, and I only had biology one. So I had all of those courses that had to be done. And of course, he was getting ready to graduate. I didn't want to be there forever. So I go, okay, I'm going to make a deal with myself. If I can get through the accelerated programs for each of those sciences, I'm going to take that as a sign. That's what I'm supposed to do. And lo and behold, I did. I did every one of those sciences in six weeks. So six weeks of Chem 1 uh, or, or Chem 2, six weeks Organic 1, the second six weeks Organic 2, and, and, and I passed. And not only did I pass, I think this is such a funny piece of me. I'm, I'm a very tactile learner, and I had created this flow chart, and I had turned it into a poster and everybody wanted a copy of it. And so I made copies and I sold them and I made $5,000. So I was like, hey, this, this must be for me. So that is honestly how I stepped into chiropractic school. And then um, I was the president of my class all four years. And we were such a close class. And um, it's unfortunate because I don't think that stuff lasts, unfortunately, but we were so close during that process. And so I, I left as a very traditional chiropractor, um, ready to hang my shingle and go. And then um, my very first seminar that I went to for continuing ed was with the ICA and it was their pediatric uh, annual conference in Chicago. I was so excited to go to Chicago. So I was like, oh, I'm going to that conference. And then listening to Carol Phillips and all this kind of stuff, I was like, oh my gosh, I really want to know about kids. And we, we really didn't get that much in school about kids. So that was the, the thing for me. You, you heard it. I enrolled. And I think that was September. And by January, I was in that program. And then you do three years of that program. Back then, it was a little bit different. I don't know what yours was like, Christine. But then um, we have to do, you know, your case report. And Maxine McMullen walked up to me and she said, you are really a teacher. And um, that was the second time somebody had said something like that to me. And then she asked me to teach in the program and she asked me to teach neurology. And I didn't want to teach it, you know, just vestibular cochlear nerve goes from the vestibular system to the cochlear system. I wanted it to come alive. So I went through a program through the Institute of Neurophysiological Psychiatry, and that's where I became a neurodevelopmental therapist. And this was like the biggest eye opener to me was to really understand these reflexes. And so I very passionately went in that direction. And that's when my practice really took a, a difference because I had seen, as I'm sure you have, you, you, you see these little kids struggling. Some of these kids you can't touch. Some of these kids can't take a chiropractic adjustment, even with a clicker. And so you go, well, what am I gonna do with them, right? So it, it gave you, it gave you a way in to their neurology. So years going by and doing all of that leads me up to probably the greatest aha moment of my entire life. In 2016, my 16 year old daughter was in a horrific car accident. She was turning left and she was T-boned. 
and she and the, the driver that hit her um, walked away. She didn't walk away. She was laying uh, when they pulled her out. Her hands and feet were curled in, so that means it's a it's a full blown head injury. And they use um, an, a, like a way of talking to each other in a very quick format called the Glasgow Coma Scale, and it goes from three to fifteen. And 15 means you have a mild traumatic brain injury and a three means you're dead. So at first they gave her an eight. And then by the time that she got to the hospital, she was actually a four, she was dying. And she had multiple areas of brain bleeds and multiple areas of diffuse uh, injury, which is, they, they call it a diffuse axonal injury and it, it's like shaken baby is what it's like. And so the airbags, the way they hit her, they literally sheared her brain and boxed her head. And she was in a non-induced coma for 12 days. And during that time, I reached out to many colleagues. I couldn't just sit there because at first they were telling me she's probably not gonna live. Then it was get ready for long-term facility. And with everything I knew and had in me, I, I could not accept that. So I reached out to many colleagues who helped me get my own brain back on my shoulders. And there were so many things that I was doing with her while she was in a coma. I was bathing her body with sacred frankincense, which is an anti-inflammatory. I was using light therapy and working her cranial nerves, following the life support box so that I could make sure that I did not increase her cranial pressure, put her blood pressure too high, or her respiration too high. So I literally was following her breath with light therapy and going through all of the cranial nerves, even lifting her eyelids and putting the light in there. And I will tell you, I don't, I don't believe for a minute that I was scared to touch her, which I'm so grateful for. Um, after they did her tracheotomy, that's when she started to wake up. But she had to relearn how to walk, talk, eat, dress herself, toilet, everything. She was in ICU for 30 days, then moved to a children's hospital in a netted bed for a while, then, but, but going to rehab. Um, she did their rehab in the day and then she did mama's rehab in the afternoon. I brought, I closed my practice at the time. I brought my equipment over there. I brought my metronome to the hospital. I brought my brain tap to the hospital. I, I did things with her because I had heard a message from Dr. Caroline Leaf probably a year ahead of this, that talked about brain injury. And all I knew was I had a window of two years for my daughter to get her brain back. And therefore it was pedal to the metal. This is all we're thinking about. I utilized functional medicine after she got out of the hospital. We had full labs done. She had eight bacteria inside of her, no, no, no wonder. But we, we, we had probably 30 supplements we did. We absolutely had zero sugar. I cooked everything. While she went to day rehab, that is when I worked. I did house calls. And then I would pick her up. Then we would go home. I have created a piece of medical equipment called the Triangle of Development. I am very, very into the vestibular system. And that was in our dining room at our home. And uh, she could only handle about 11 minutes at a time, but whatever she could tolerate, we would do in a very soothing way. It, all, it wasn't always hard, 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 what she could take. Uh, the day rehab place, they were treating her more like she had an organic brain injury. They were not treating her like she was a 16 year old that fully developed and had all the files. And, and my instinct told me, we, we got to do more than having her do a puzzle. And I would meet with them. I would bring them research. And it just got me nowhere. So then I went and applied to Shepherds, 
we got accepted twice, but we lost our space twice because if you're in their hospital, you have a right to the space first. Then I went over to Life University and worked with Dr. Michael Longyear, um, who was fantastic. We did the gyro stem. She has a uh, pediatric ophthalmologist who's fantastic with vision therapy. Um, I mean, I just, I did everything. She was doing neurofeedback using the Loretta model for that. I mean, we worked this for two additional years, solid. I moved to Athens, Georgia with her um, and was there. I just did independent contracting work for neurofeedback. And um, I stayed with her for her first year of college. And then um, I, I needed to get our resources rebuilt. So mom needed to go back to work and do things. Now, I have to tell you, I didn't get back to private practice until January 2019 from that adventure. But one of the most incredible moments for me as a person, as a professional, is I, I, I have to tell you, I really believe God, well, I know God knew that I'd, I'd be going through that, but I believe everything he's allowed me to learn really prepared me for her. And now I am just so fired up to tell people how this thing up here works. Not that I'm a counselor, but the battle is in the mind and you can change this. If you understand how it works and if you can't do it on your own, you got people like us that can support you and bring you to the place where you really want to be. Unfortunately, I think COVID has really thrown a wrench in all of us. But um, I, as Dr. Christine and I were talking, you know, creating this more virtual type of a presence, I think, is also uh, a very beneficial way that we can keep our message alive and going. So um, that's my story. And I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful for the journey. You, you never might say that you're really happy that your kid was in a car accident, but I'm happy my kid went through that because the way it's changed our life, not just professionally, but for her as a person, for us as a mother-daughter, um, I wouldn't change anything. Well, I bet she's glad you didn't become a lawyer, I'll tell you that. Well, I think so, too. <laughs> right? <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, what... The, the loss to the chiropractic profession, the, the neurologically based chiropractic profession, I should say, because even within our profession, we do have different areas of, of expertise and specialty. But I mean, what a story and what a blessing for you to have had all of that expertise, because we know we both know she would not be in the place that she's in now. And by the way, folks, I just heard from Dr. Laura, she's doing great. So yeah, he's a rising senior. She does drive a car again. I would like to wrap her in bubble wrap. I can't do that. (laughs) Um, And what was really cool is um, she worked for Governor Kemp's office. That's our governor here in Georgia. She was an intern for his communications department this past summer. So that was a really cool experience. And she's, she's doing incredible. And Um, I I have the opportunity to work with some brain injured young people right now. And they didn't come to me till after a year post-injury and they're nowhere near where she was. And um, I know, I know we did the right thing. I really do. Oh, absolutely. I know without a doubt as well. So, well, I was saying that leads perfectly into your practice because you have something called Connect My Brain. Um, And now gearing more toward, yeah, (laughs) there it is in the video files. We'll put that. And so you're working also um, specifically with autism. You're an autism specialist as well. And so 
kind of give the listeners a little idea because a lot of them and a lot of people I talk to based on personal experience have never heard of functional neurology or working with the brain in this way. So can you talk a little bit about how you use that functional neurology to help um, children with autism? Just in lay people's terms, because even these crazy neurological terms and brain terms, you're like, ah, my brain is overwhelmed. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, I think the first thing to do is is to define the term. So really, when you put functional in front of anything, it really just means getting back to basics, getting back to the, the way things actually work. So one of my taglines is I look at mechanical, chemical, and brain. So if you go to a traditional doctor, they're typically specializing in one area. A cardiologist looks at the heart. An endocrinologist looks at all the glands of the body. But you're, you're, not, you're not part and partial. You're not just a heart over here. You're not just, you know, glands over here. And even like in chiropractic, you're not just a spine. You are this orchestra of so many things. And if you don't work those pieces together, usually something lags behind. So, for example, I could be really great working with children with autism, developmental delay, brain injury. But if you only do one piece, I'm not going to get the same kind of results as if I work you as an orchestra. If I make sure that the strings are tuned in like they're supposed to be, the horns are tuned in like they're supposed to be, that's when we're going to have a melody. So if I look at you, see what kind of movement. So for example, children go through milestones. You're supposed to crawl for six months. The reason you crawl is that's you laying down the information so the left side of the brain controls the right side of the body and vice versa. Before you go into that crawling pattern, you're actually more in a homolateral pattern. You can't see my leg, but... The arm and leg on that side is going out and your head is turned. You can't go that way because it means you wouldn't cross the midline. So through maturity, you literally come to the cross crawl. But as in any part of development, you have to practice it. So if children don't crawl, typically for six months, there's a problem. Now, Pampers has a great commercial out there of a little girl shuffling on her bottom. And she looks perfectly happy, right? But she's not doing a typical crawl. She's moving. She's adapting. But adaptation typically comes at a cost, right? So we look at why wouldn't that little girl be able to get into that posture, hands and knees? And what do you have to do to be in that posture? You have to be able to lift your head. And that happens between the base of the head called the occiput and the second cervical vertebrae. You're supposed to be able to nod. And if you can't do that, maybe you were a C-section. Maybe you were a vacuum extraction. Maybe they used forceps. Maybe you just got stuck. And if that changed the mechanics, it can change the movement pattern. So the movement is there to provide functional changes to the brain. So functional neurology. And so we look at what can we do to improve that movement? Well, the cool part is we can adjust her, number one. Number two, we can go back because of neuroplasticity, practice the cross-crawl pattern, and relay down that neurology. And so just for... And sorry, just to interrupt um, for our listeners, neuroplasticity, what does that mean? <laughs> well, I kind of think of it as like you're molding clay, right? You get this blob of clay and because it spins on whatever that thing's called and you put your hands around it, you shape it, right? And over time, because of your influence, the stimulation to the clay, you shape it. So neuroplasticity is about doing something to provide a change. Now, 
I'm really glad you brought that up because it does need to be defined. A lot of people use that word and they automatically think it's good. Well, there is good neuroplasticity and there is bad neuroplasticity. If I eat fried chicken from Kentucky Fried Chicken, if that's even still around, I don't even know if it's still around. And Twinkies, that's certainly not going to give me good chemical fuel to put my system together, right? So whatever stimulus we give ourselves, um, I sit on a ball. So this can give my brain neuroplasticity that I'm not just sitting in a flexed posture all the time, right? I gaze out at my window so that I'm taking my eyes from near far vision. I'm giving it neuroplasticity. I'm giving it some type of a stimulus to hopefully promote the right change, okay? So we know that the brain is malleable. We know that we can do certain things to it and make a change. And that really is at any age. It's not limited to children. So you were talking about relating that neuroplasticity to children with crawling issues. So we practice that to give them that stimulation so that we can relay down that pattern. We'll also check for primitive reflexes. That one would typically demonstrate an asymmetrical tonic neck reflex. And then we have reflex integration exercises that we would teach so that we can break that reflex. Now, if it's okay, I'll touch on reflexes. Does that work with your time? I would absolutely love that. Okay. Maybe if you, you mentioned the asymmetric tonic neck reflex, are there any, first, if there's any other reflexes related to crawling? And well, then maybe talk about three, them. There's three that's typically always looped together. And that's the Moro reflex, AKA startle the ATNR, asymmetrical tonic neck reflex, and then the tonic labyrinthine reflex or TLR. You will never have one reflex firing by itself. The, the neurology just doesn't do that. So let me explain what these are. So reflexes are literally reflexes. They are not sensory motor. They occur before sensory motor and they're actually known as central pattern generators or CPGs. And these are actually part of wiring us up. The very first set of reflexes that come on board in the womb, everybody goes through these, they're all perfectly normal, but it's part of the wiring up of the nervous system. So the very first ones are called the withdrawal reflexes. And this is where a National Geographic has actually filmed footage of a baby in the womb, his thumb coming towards it and the baby pulling away. So the very first thing that we have to learn how to do is survive. We have to learn how to get away from noxious stimulus. Noxious just means anything that could hurt you, okay? So that baby, for the first few weeks, it is really hostile to its environment. And the only thing that's in that environment is then an amniotic fluid, which creates vibration. But our neurology is learning how to survive. Then around nine weeks, there's a transition. And the very first reflex that comes on board after that is Mora. And it would take a long time to kind of go through everything, but I'll highlight this one. It activates three things in the neurology. The first one is arousal. Does that newborn know how to wake up rhythmically every two to three hours to feed? Because glucose is going to get used up in the brain faster than any other place. So as soon as that baby startles, they wake up, they cry, you feed them. Okay? Now, it's going to grow up just like the withdrawal reflex grows up because you still use it today. So with the withdrawal reflex, the way it looks grown up, if I'm cooking and I skim my arm on a hot pot, I don't sit there and go, wow, my flesh is burning. I, I don't even think about it and pull my arm away. That's a grown up withdrawal reflex. It knows how to respond to a noxious stimulus. Well, Moro does the same thing. Arousal grows up to attention. Ooh, red flag, big, big word. Think of all these kids that are labeled 
attention deficit or attention hyperactivity, relating all the way back to a reflex rather than saying it must be a lack of concerta that is keeping my child from focusing. Attention is a very normal maturation process. We look at this, especially when we're teaching our little ones how to potty train. So if we take this little cutie and we set them on a potty, they have absolutely no idea what we're doing with them. But they're sitting there, they're looking around. Well, the pressure from the potty begins to press on the pelvis and the bladder. As they sit there and they're there longer, all of a sudden they tinkle and we throw a party. And they get excited because of a mirror neuron. Hey, I just did something. Everybody's extremely excited in here. Okay, you practice repetition, 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 neuroplasticity. Then all of a sudden, the child sitting on the potty begins to feel, there's something going on inside of me. Now they're paying attention to self. Now they realize something else is going on in there. And through practice, repetition, neuroplasticity, all of a sudden, the little one goes, I got to go, I got to go, I got to go. Because they've learned how to pay attention to their body. And you can't pay attention to a blackboard or a book if you can't pay attention to self. So that is part of that reflex. The second component of Moro is regulating CO2 and O2. And this is a very big one because you, I'm sure Dr. Christine has seen as well, you'll get these little babies in your office that have belts around them with alarms because they stop breathing. If this reflex is not regulated, that's exactly what happens. Now, it goes further because if they cannot correct this issue, which comes back to a reflex, the CO2 is going to climb, the O2 is going to go down, and this child is going to drift off into a deep sleep and they will pass away. And that's what SIDS is. So Moro can be tied to a life or death situation. The third thing that it activates in the neurology is the sympathetic nervous system or fight or flight. I mean, this is the enchilada of all reflexes. And this was my bridge, why I went into neurofeedback. Because I would try to show parents, see the kid, he did a, he did a, he did a startle, he did a moro. And the parents would be looking like, okay, I, I really don't know what you're talking about. But I got a piece of equipment that allowed me to quantify the stress response. And when I can quantify a chronic stress response, I know that child is locked into sympathetic dominance. And no matter what else you want to work on, until you break that pattern, that child cannot go forward because this is who their brain thinks they are now. They think they're either pulled away like attention deficit, where they're just kind of not involved in anything, or their attention hyperactivity, they're overly involved in everything. So it's, it's a really great way of trying to help people understand if we don't understand stress, instead of using it like a box of tissues, it's, it's a real physiological event. And if a child further has in their history that they had some kind of birth event, that can be just an incredible historical moment where this has been going on since that time. Now, our neurology is incredible to adapt. But again, it doesn't mean it doesn't come at a cost. I'm working with a little boy right now who did stop breathing during the birth process. He went to the NICU for a while. When they let him out on the way home, he stopped breathing and had to go back to the hospital. And she's just now finding me and he's eight years old. And he's been locked in this pattern since then. But we're going to get resolution because we're going to break that pattern. We're going to really restore oxygen centers in this kid. And he's going to fuse back into an eight-year-old boy where he should be. Wow. Laura, that is so much great information. And 
this is what it's exactly what I'm trying to get our listeners to put those dots together to connect Mm -hmm. is that the, the steps that are taken in those first few years of life and even in development are crucial Yes. to hopefully we're going to be preventing these issues from even manifesting, but, but basically looking at the cause, if we have older children with problems, we can trace that neurology back to the beginning. And until you actually rework the brain to connect it in a positive way, you're, you're not going to be actually changing the brain itself. You can't come in from the outside. We can only change within. I, I couldn't agree with you more. We, we unfortunately ha- still have this motto that kids are going to grow out of everything or that kids are resilient. And I really, as a professional, speaking to your group, speaking to whoever does get to see this, those terms have to come out because they're not true. The greatest time to change something is before it becomes a problem. And we have developmental windows immediately after birth, the third year of life, and between seven and a half, eight years. After that, it's not that it can't be done, but it's difficult because those are windows that allow us to get in. The brain is malleable and we're making changes. Plus, the first seven years of life, that's when the subconscious is formed. So when you talk about the first eight years of a kid's life having so many ups and downs and struggles, that, that, that's, that's a neurological imprint. And that won't go away. It won't go away. I don't care how much neuroplasticity you have, but you'll be able to handle it better. But the longer you wait, boy, that really becomes an issue. Yeah, I agree. And that's why we're here, trying to get people educated beforehand. And yes, I can help children after the fact and and work backwards, so to speak. But my greatest joy is actually working ahead and hopefully preventing issues. But that's really where we started, right? We're in the business of prevention. We've just been able to go and tackle this much bigger issue, but I'm right there with you. The, the best way to go about this is before it ever happens. So do you have a question, Dr. Well, Thompson? I was going to lead back into the crawling because in several episodes of this podcast, we have kept reiterating crawling is important. Mm-hmm. You Parents seem to be of the opinion, in the majority opinion, that it's not a huge deal if they skip crawling. I hear that more and more and more, and I'm kind of, sometimes there's a little bit of frustration, I'll admit on my part, but trying to explain to them, and now we're really getting to the meat of it after listeners have been hearing it in these previous episodes, why is crawling so important for later development? What happens in that brain and rest of the body connection where crawling is super essential for even things like language and speech. And and also what, when should a baby be crawling just Mm -hmm. to kind of add on to that? Mm -hmm. Okay. So kids are typically going to start getting into that little haunched position at around six months. And by nine months, they better be moving. They better be doing a typical crawl. But again, they even have to practice on all fours, kind of rocking back and forth and trying stuff out So there's a practice that's involved, but even those early pieces are part of the equation. So the physical part of the arm and leg literally reaching or, you know, from the hip, that is sending an impulse on the same side of the spine that that is going. So let's say I have my right arm out and my left knee then I've got communication coming down from the left side of the spine and the right side of the spine. And it literally is feedback to the brain. And then once it's in the brain, it literally crosses over. So it is connected. So if you go and look at something like the homunculus, which is the sensory motor cortex, it's a map on the sensory motor cortex, 
it will show you the body parts that are being communicated to sensory motor. This is the beginning or the beginning part of sensory motor. The reflexes are central pattern generators, but they're there to get the brain going so that you will take that next step of sensory motor. Rolling is part of becoming sensory motor. Working into your crawl, amphibian, digging your little toes into the ground and kind of like swimming on the ground. You're actually putting pressure into uh, your feet. Um, the moro, you're literally going around the center of gravity. All of those things are going on at the same time. So the moro doesn't inhibit till around four months. So that's part of that process. ATNR, asymmetrical tonic neck reflex, that should be getting ready to uh, integrate by the time that you go into crawling, so around six months, because if you turned your head, the same arm and leg would go out, it wouldn't be the opposite. So it's part of breaking up reflexes, and you need the reflexes to integrate to release the brainstem. If not, we have a battle going on between the lower brain and the higher brain. So when you come into this world, you're fully formed, but you are not fully functioning. You are brainstem dominant. And so that brainstem has got to be released to allow the higher brain to take over. And what's the new diagnosis or the latest diagnosis is executive function dysfunction. Well, we're not going to get up here to the executive function if our brainstem is keeping us down there because you haven't integrated what you needed to integrate for whatever reason. And there's, there's absolutely a plethora of reasons. Now, even further, in this crawling time, you're actually also laying down the specialty centers of the brain. And this goes on for a while. This is why babies have really big heads and small bodies. They're going through neurogenesis. Well, you don't get to keep all those nerves. You only get to keep what you practice. So then at the third birthday, you're going to start going through what's called pruning. And you're literally going to get rid of what you didn't practice. And that doesn't mean you're left with what should be there. You're left with what you practice. So the little pamper bottom shuffler, she's left with what she practiced. Now, the specialty centers of the brain. So for example, communication. They're, they're on both sides of your brain, but they do two different things. So on the right side, it is your need to talk. Ooh, think about all the kids with language delay, okay? On the left side, it's the work of talk. Maybe that's part of language delay. It could be either or. But to have this conversation like we're having right now, our specialty centers have to communicate with each other. I have to have a need to talk to you. And I have to put the work into it so it makes sense. And then I have to have the right timing to have the words come out and so people understand what I'm saying. So if I was all over the place, you know, people would go, God, I have no idea what this woman was even talking about. Then that would mean my timing was off, right? So crawling is part of the whole picture. And there have been, I've actually heard this myself, pediatricians telling their parent, telling parents that it's no big deal. And I, I want to tell your viewers, please don't listen to that. Unfortunately, you must understand the background to different professionals. I am not trained to tell you which antibiotic you should take. I am not trained to tell you to take blood pressure medication. I am trained in primitive reflexes. I am trained in neurology. I am trained in chiropractic. And so I have standing on the things that I'm trained in. The pediatrician is not trained in primitive reflexes. I am not even sure if they know what they are. In the past, I've actually spoken to many pediatricians who told me they had no idea what I was talking about. So it, it all goes to 
What is that person trained in? It's kind of like the word cholesterol, where we've been told forever that cholesterol is bad, and that is a complete fake news because your body makes cholesterol. So how could something be bad that you make? So we, we I don't know, I'm a seeker of truth. That is really what my platform is. And so I am speaking to you from experience and from what I've learned. It is absolutely necessary for children to go through every single stage of development. If they miss one, it doesn't mean they won't go forward, but it does mean there's an adaptation and I can promise you adaptation comes at a cost. For sure, absolutely. So let's just say you have a child who comes in with, you know, fill in the blank for what they've been diagnosed with or a problem and you find out in their history that they did not crawl. What, what would you do? What would that look like? Well, first I'm gonna assess it. So in my assessment, I have a way of testing primitive reflexes um, on a very primitive level as well as on a functional level. So we're, we're going to see if that's happening. Then I like to go back as far as I can to figure out what happened. Why didn't you innately progress in that direction? Most of the time what I find, as I mentioned before, I find there's a vestibular problem. And your vestibular system is inside of your ears. You have three canals. They have an anterior, posterior, and a horizontal. This is actually the very first piece of neurology in the womb. And if a baby is not moving correctly, then neurological connections are not coming together. So I find out where, where did you leave off? And then that's where I'm going to bring you forward. So there can be a variety of reasons. There can be a variety of places where people left off. So that's where it becomes extremely a personal approach as compared to some approaches that are more cookie cutter, that everybody's just going to kind of do this. And so it's really that history and that assessment that tells me what does that child need to do? Because one of the things that I have found, which is my, is my platform for being a person of hope, is you unleash where they left off. It's like a set of dominoes. It just goes. So that's what I try to do. That's amazing. Would you tell us a little bit about your center, Connect? Is it Connect the Brain? Connect my brain. Connect my brain. Sorry, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> connect my brain. <laughs> Um, so Connect My Brain is, is, a, is a place, it's mainly about probably 90% kids, um, but we do have some adults. A lot of times parents of kids want to get some help too, because especially of that piece of the um, subconscious. And lots of times kids have problems because parents have problems. So we offer neuro and biofeedback, which if you're not familiar, what it is, it's a therapy based on how the body works. If we are a feedback mechanism, so if I get hungry, I get a message up here that says, feed me. If I'm hot or cold, I make an adjustment to the temperature. So we're always getting feedback. Your, your neurotransmitters are the same way, right down at a synapse. Um, are we in need of some serotonin? There is a communication, serotonin is released, and then it is stopped. So there's feedback mechanisms in all parts of us. So that's why we know neurofeedback works. So we'll do a stress response test and a brain mapping. We'll find out if you're in a chronic stress pattern or if uh, and or what is your map like. And what a map tells us is are the frequencies within the correct range. And an analogy that I use is your brain is kind of like a radio station. If I want to listen to 104.7 The Fish, I have to be on 104.7. If I'm on 0.6 or 0.8, I get static. Now, your brain waves are not that finite, but they definitely are within a range. And when they're not in the correct range, you can have memory problems. You can have PTSD. You can have stress and anxiety. You can have ruminating thoughts. You, can't, you, have, you can have trouble sitting still. You can have trouble falling asleep. You can have OCD tendencies. You can have the whole gamut. So we're showing people where there's just this blanket that it's mental illness 
where it's just really uh, brain dysfunction. And it's about brain retraining because if you practice that particular frequency, get it back into range, those symptoms go away. And I have just never in my life seen anything change people so quickly. So that's, that's a really big part of what I do here and probably one of my favorites now. Um, I do functional medicine, which means that I do functional labs. Same thing like we were talking about with functional neurology. Over the years, the traditional lab tests have been, the, the within normal limits have been changed. And they're now based on how many people take the test, gender, and age. Well, the biochemistry in here doesn't change. So functional just means that you go back to where biochemistry should be. So we look at a few genetic snippets. I don't get crazy with that. We look at food. We look at stool. We look at urine. Um, we look at neurotransmitters. We look at uh, total body burden for different inflammatory markers, mold, uh, environmental pollutants, uh, strep antibodies, stuff like that. We look at all of that. So that is the, the chemical piece to the program. We have a full nutrition department because I have found one of the hardest things for people to do is to change what they eat. You would think that you were taking the world away. And so we have a support system that takes them through uh, a 90-day elimination bringing the right supplements together, and then you can either take another test or we can do a rotation diet and see where we end up. And then we have a full-on movement program. Um, we have a rock wall downstairs. We have treadmills. We have rowing machine. We have chiropractic. Um, we have interactive metronome. We have interact uh, integrative listening system. We, we have everything we can do to approach every piece of neurology. And then I did, I created a piece of medical equipment that I call the Triangle of Development. And that is a 10 hour program, two hours a day, five days in a row, and it's brainstem integration in order to bring vestibular eyes and ears back online the way that they're supposed to be. We'll do cooking classes, we'll do essential oil classes, we are really about the community trying to be part of things. Um, it's, it's, in a, it's in a home, it's in a, a house, which really gives it that you know, lovey-dovey feeling. And we have a garden out front as well. So we play in the dirt, we play with our minds, and we play and make our bodies move as well. So we just try to get it all done. And this is in, sorry, we're in Georgia, is this? Or is we're this in Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> so how can people find you, Dr. Laura? Well, our website is the name, connectmybrain.com. Pretty simple. Um, you can find me too on Messenger. Uh, Connect My Brain has its own Facebook page. And I'm doing Facebook Live in about 30 minutes every Thursday. Um, this month, I'm, I'm really hitting some hot topics because I, I feel like I need to be a professional that speaks out. So today I'm talking about masks. So that's in 30 minutes. Um, and But you can find me there and also the office. The phone number here is 678-501-5172. And my email is drlaura at drlaurahanson.com. Great, and we'll put all that information in the um description of the podcast and when this goes up on video on YouTube too. Great. Yeah, yeah. because this was a very visual uh, program for those of you listening and not watching. So you might want to check out that YouTube show when it, when it goes up. My last question, this is something we, we've asked everybody, especially you as a mom, what is your one piece of advice that you could give to upcoming moms, new moms, what would your central advice be? Oh, those are so many different populations. If, if you're thinking about a baby, um, having a baby, conceiving a baby, you need to check out your own health before you conceive, number one. Um, if you are a mom, a new mom, realize your baby needs boundaries. 
their little brain waves are all over the place and they need and they desire and they thrive on structure. If you're a mom and things have gone wrong and everything that you have tried has not worked, don't lose hope. Reach out to people like Dr. Christine and I because we do have some answers. Amazing. Wow. Thank you, Dr. Laura. We did it. It's uh, it's one hour and <laughs> you can now get ready for your broadcast, which we will tune into. How are we finding the broadcast? Is it on YouTube? It, it's on Connect My Brain's Facebook page. It's a live event. Okay. So I'll go do it. And then there'll be a video recording of it too. Sure. Absolutely. And I've been going and, and posting them on LinkedIn once I get done. But Facebook isn't letting me... Um, isn't letting me take my link and populate my picture this month. So I'm just able to put the link in the, in the post. That's okay. We, we know why, why that is. <laughs> yes, we do. Thank you so much for joining us. And we hope that you are going to come back as a guest soon because you have so much information to help those new moms out there. So thanks for joining us. And we will certainly talk to you soon. Thank you for having me. I, I really enjoy communicating and, and sharing with colleagues. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. And we're back after having an incredible well, discussion with Dr. Laura Hansen in Atlanta, Georgia. This is something that I'm sure a lot of people have wanted to broach upon since they've heard us talk about that importance of crawling so much in past episodes. So I really want to summarize for you what Dr. Laura was talking about with the importance of crawling and those brain connections. So she mentioned homolateral. That means when you're a baby and you're developing, you have one, you have two different hemispheres of the brain. Now in your very primitive state, these connections aren't crossing over yet. They are working with Right side is working with right side. Left side is typically working with left side. So she mentioned a reflex, the, a, the asymmetric. Thank you, asymmetric tonic reflex. If the baby's head turns to the right, the right arm and the right leg will raise as well. If the baby turns head to the left, think of a fencer. Yeah, yeah. So it's, think like, of it's a also called a fencer reflex because it's like on guard. Yes. Right? <laughs> So that's connections happening on the, on the homolateral scale. Now, when you start developing crawling, this is where those cross connections come in. There's a reason that the two hemispheres of the brain are connected by um, a certain part. And with that cross crawling comes the start of forming those connections that don't stay on the same side of the brain and body. They start crossing over. So certain actions that happen in the right brain can stimulate the left part of the body and stimulate certain things to happen in the left brain. So that's where she was coming about talking about those connections where you have certain areas in the brain designed to do certain functions. One area on the right brain has a certain function of speech, but it will connect to a part in the left area of the brain that has a different function. And that's where you can have the physical manifestation of speech and the control of the vocal cords. But then you have the timing, the way that we do certain pauses, the way that we learn when not to talk versus when to talk. So those are two entirely different areas, but they need to have those connections. And that is what the cross crawl pattern sets up. And so I just wanted to lay that out very, very simply. <laughs> yeah, it, it, neurology isn't simple. And it's even difficult for doctors sometimes to understand. And then when you get to the functional neurology, we don't have an issue with the brain being diseased per se, but those connections have become disconnected. And I liken this to with the hemispheres of the brain, you might have a computer with one operating system and a computer with another, like my Mac isn't going to talk to my PC. They're totally, totally two different operating systems. You plug them in, they both work, but they cannot talk to each other. And so that's where this sort of connection comes in. But that connection is not going to be able to occur if you don't have the foundation of the brain development there. 
So when I talk to my patients about this, I liken it to rungs of a ladder. And I say, we're going up the ladder. Ideally, we want to hit each rung. And yes, sometimes we might miss a rung and we'll continue up. It might not be, um, it might be a way that, as Dr. Laura was saying, they'll adapt, they'll figure it out, they'll figure out a way. So with the crawling of scooching on the bum, or they'll do a weird knee thing, or, you know, I see all sorts of different crawls. Kids get so creative. They figure a way out. They may even roll to where they want to get, and then they'll sit themselves up. I mean, it's amazing, really. The, the human ingenu ingenuity is amazing of what um, we will do to be able to get what we want. But is it ideal? And that's what this comes down to. We want to optimize our baby's brain development. We don't want them just to get there at any cost. We wanna make sure that they're not missing rungs on the ladder. And so crawling is one of those major rungs for the reasons that Dr. Toxel just talked about in that connecting the hemispheres of the brain ultimately as the brain develops. So, um, you know, what happens if a child isn't crawling when they come in is I again take it back to the beginning and I assess all the primitive reflexes, look at them because as Dr. Laura said, they are involved in this process of crawling. They need to be there at birth and then we need to make sure that they're integrating or as she said, growing up, I say that they're evolving into our more mature reflexes because we still do keep them in, in some way, but we actually have control from our brain. Our brain says, just because you turn your head, I don't have to raise your arm in that sensor reflex. I can turn my head and then I can decide to raise my arm, but that's a higher brain function. So preventatively or proactively, we wanna make sure that babies have free use of their body motion. So that means that although you may wanna carry your baby around for baby wearing and attachment parenting, they need time to be on the ground. They have to have a way to move their body. And if they're in a baby carrier, whether you're carrying them or they're in a, I call it contraptions guys, um, you know, the bouncy seats or the swings or um, jumpers, you fill in the blank about whatever contraption. If your baby is not on the floor and able to move their body, then that means that they are not going to be able to send those signals to the brainstem at this point and then the brain to take their development to that next level. Because they, as Dr. Laura said, they're going to do a motion, something is going to happen. So they are going to be on their tummy and they're gonna draw their knees up under them and then get on their hands and knees and rock forward and back. So this is another primitive reflex that we didn't touch on yet. And then all of a sudden it's gonna propel them forward and they're gonna reach a hand out and then that knee's gonna come out. And then that feedback to the brain goes, oh, wait, when I do that, then this is what happens. And of course, as mom and dad are there and they're encouraging them on, they're like, oh, when I did that, I also got this positive reaction. So that plasticity in a positive way, generating that desire to keep doing the motion. So they have to have that, as she said, you have to have this desire, this, this need to want to move. And believe you me, I have seen some frustrated babies who come in when they are, are either late on that milestone of crawling or they've missed it. Um, and they are frustrated because they haven't had that opportunity to move their body. So it is a lot of work for them. And babies will get frustrated. Parents will say, well, they're, they're crying when I put them down on their belly. Well, why are they crying? Is there a misalignment? Do they have a subluxation? Are they comfortable in that position? That's what I check out as well. Can they move their arms freely to get in that position? Sometimes there's subluxations at the shoulders or um, the neck and they can't comfortably be in that position. So that's going to prevent them. So A, we wanna make sure that there's no physical or biomechanical reason that they don't wanna be in that position and then we want to make sure that their primitive reflexes are actually working initially. If they've gone beyond the age, we want to make sure that they're integrating. 
And that's that brainstem function that Dr. Laura was talking about. She called it central processing generator. And that's what the brainstem is. It is this generator of movement without using the brain. Okay, we don't have to think about it. We just move and this is what's going to happen. And that feedback system goes up to the brain so that when, as we keep using those primitive reflexes, that's going to stimulate the brain. Then it's going to be able to have that top-down control to um, integrate. And ultimately, it looks like those primitive reflexes go away, but they don't really. But that top-down control of the brain means that they can get in those positions to crawl. So it sounds complicated, but that's why you work with somebody who is versed in the aspect of primitive reflexes and milestone development, because it isn't your child will crawl when they want to. There is a predictable time, as Dr. Laura was saying. So it's around that six-month benchmark and definitely not beyond nine months. Beyond nine months, I say eight months even, that's the cutoff. And then your child is delayed in that. And we have to really look at getting that rung of the ladder filled in so that they can move forward with their brain development in a more organized way, which means that their processing of the information coming in is going to be much better, which means then they're going to function at a higher level. And that's going to optimize the brain function. So we hope that this was really helpful for you. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next time. And if you have any issues or questions, you can reach out to us on our information that we put in the description of this podcast. So we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.